When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the day of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, about a thousand years, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of their Lord God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. And the Levite leaders said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to, to everlasting. everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, and the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous." You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands and decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. 
you told them to go in and take possession of the land you, you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Org, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands along with their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them, by your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, 
for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruits and its other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Krista. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that uh, we would hear your word through your spirit today. That we wouldn't just read it, but that it would read us. Open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to what you have for us. And may we hear it and be changed. Amen. Well, that was a long, long scripture. What was something that you noticed or that you heard? This is a non-traditional introduction. A pattern. Ooh. Say more. Very observant. Other things that you saw or heard? Or more on that one? In the good times, I heard they became greedy, they became arrogant, and then it was in those very hard times that they became humbled. And that was the pattern that was over and over, it seemed to be. Nice. Good. Anything else? What I'm hearing in your words is that's not just a theme in the scripture, it's a theme now, like maybe today or in our lives or in our world, that God is continually compassionate and we often continually run away. What questions do you have when you hear this? Do you have any questions or wonderings? Does God's grace ever run out? Is that the last one? Other questions? Hmm. If you're not paying attention to the, to the pattern or the comeback um, or even what's going on in the moment, because we can see the, com- we can see the comeback because we're on the other side of it, but if we're in the middle of it, how do you see where you are? Is that what I'm hearing? 
so how do you, if you don't see where you are, you don't kind of know what to do. Is that fair? I, I agree. I think there's uh, a cute story that illustrates this. You might have heard it before, but it was on uh, Easter weekend when a young boy was in the kitchen on his device, actually, and he sees his mom, and she's hard at work preparing the Easter dinner, and he watches her slice off the, about an inch of the end of the ham, and then go on the other side and slice the other hand off. And he's looking at her, and she just kind of takes these two pieces, and she throws them away, and he's like, Mom, why are you cutting the ends of the ham off and then throwing them away? And she's like, well, that's how my mom did it. And the ham always turned out great, and, you know, so I figured if it if that's what she's always done and it tastes really good, then I'm going to do that too. I've never really thought about why. Maybe you should ask Grandma. So later that night at Easter dinner, after the meal's underway, they start passing the food and they're eating, and this boy turns to his grandma and says, Grandma, why did, um, you know, my mom says she cuts the end of the ham off because she learned it from you. So why did you do that? And Grandma pauses and thinks for a moment, and then says, well, actually, I have no idea why I did that. I just watched my mother do it, and so that's what I always did. And come to think of it, that's throwing away a lot of ham ends. You know, you should call your great-grandmother and ask her after dinner. So the boy's a little annoyed, but undeterred, He calls up his great-grandmother. She's about 90 years old and living in a nursing home, but still very sharp. And so he greets her and asks her about her her Easter, and then, you know, he launches right in and, you know, says, well, Grandma, because I don't think you say great-grandma, but Grandma, uh, my grandma, or my mom, cuts the ends of the ham off, and she said, when I asked her about it, that she learned it from her mom, your daughter, that she cuts the ends of the ham off. And she said she, did, she does that because she learned it from you. So can you tell me why they do that? And all of a sudden, the grandmother chuckles really loudly into the phone, and she says, well, I have no idea why they do it. But I know why I did it, because when I was a young mom, we had such a tiny house and such a tiny oven that when I bought my big ham, it wouldn't fit into my tiny pans unless I cut the ends off. (laughs) It's still a good story. Because I think that there are many things that you probably do, that I do, that we do, that we don't even realize why we're doing it. And even more, what other people might be learning or not learning from those things that they're watching. And as we hear in this story, we do see this pattern of reoccurrence, this almost forgetting or this rebelling. There's this arrogance and stiff-neckedness that gets shown. And when we get to these stories of, that we've been calling Restoring What's Broken, it's these stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's this sincere people of faith. They're in a time of return from exile. Remember, exile was when God's people were kicked out of the promised land, and they were kicked out in three waves, and so then there's this return, ironically, in three waves where people come back. First, Zerubbabel and a wave of people come back to Jerusalem, and they're called to rebuild the temple, and they encounter opposition when they do it, but they succeed and overcome it, and then they they have this celebration, and God's presence is never present in the temple. 
And then the next wave of people comes, and it's Ezra, and he's going to bring a wave of people back, and they're going to rebuild the community and rebuild the faith, and there's this revival, and then there's this opposition, and then this really strange divorce decree, and then the book ends. And then Nehemiah comes, and we've been looking at it for the last couple of weeks. Nehemiah brings a third wave of people, and they're going to come, and they're going to rebuild the city walls and gates, have the protection around the city, and... They encounter opposition, and they overcome, and they rebuild it in 52 days. And we love to stop the story there because we love happy endings. But when we open the Bible, we often don't get happy endings. What we get is strange stories, like our reading today was a little strange, filled with mixed characters and endings that are this weird mixture of success and failure. And so if we want to be encouraged, find examples, have happy endings, then we should look for Disney movies and go to the self-help section. Now, I get it. I get why we go to the self-help. We want things to speak clearly to us, to speak personally to us, to have relevance to us. And I believe that the Bible actually wants to do that in our lives. It's just the way they do it, the way that the writers do it, the way that I think God has done it, is by giving us these weird stories of mixed examples. Maybe because we're people that are a mixed bag of good and bad of success and failure with stories in our lives that often can't be explained easily or quickly. And I think that gives us encouragement because maybe you're in a place right now where you're, you would say you're just coming out of a season of exile or you've been in a season of exile, like it's a wilderness where you feel lost or distracted or like you're wandering and now you're in a place where you're just getting this glimpse of new direction, where you have a new energy, where you want to bring help and hope to people and places in the world. And so this is your story then too. Or maybe that's not it. Maybe you're in a place where you actually know where you're going. Not only do you know where you're going, you're focused and you're moving. It's, it's good. But if you're honest, it's slow going. You thought you'd be farther than you were. Well, then this story is your story too. That's the people that we face. There's, there's bumps and bruises along the way. There's detours and distractions, and it's hard. And if you're in a place where there's opposition, then this is your story too. Because the Bible gives us stories because they actually mirror the stories of our lives. And I think in this story... In this ending, that God wants to give us a warning and also an encouragement. And we've kind of hit on the warning. We've seen in this pattern where there's this Bible reading marathon. Did you catch it in the story? They're from daybreak to noon. That's like four to six hours that people ask Ezra, their spiritual leader, to read the scriptures to them all of that time. And it says they listened attentively. It's like a Bible reading marathon. Seven days, four to six hours a day. I mean, I think even I would get a little distracted. But they do it. 
And as they're listening, they realize what's happening in God's story where they are in real time and they realize, hey, it's the seventh month in the story of God. We're in the seventh month. In the middle of the seventh month, they celebrate a festival. We haven't celebrated this festival. We need to celebrate this festival. Let's do it in the way that God says, for the right reasons, and they do. It's called the Festival of Tabernacles. They live in tents for a week, which doesn't maybe make a lot of sense to us, that they would leave the comforts of their home to live in a tent to actually identify with God's protection and God's provision and his presence in a time of wilderness. Why would people, people who really like to um, look at people who like to camp strangely and say, I camp at the Radisson or the Marriott <laughs> or the Ritz-Carlton. <laughs> yeah, that's my camping. They, would, they often look at people who like to camp and go, that's strange. And yet there's something about getting outside of town, sleeping in a flimsy tent, hearing bugs and stars and lights and sounds that we actually somehow miss that help us to experience not just nature. I really believe the Spirit of God. That's part of what's happening in the Festival of Tabernacles, but also they're asked to sacrifice gigantic, huge, expensive sacrifices. Now, the seventh month would be the time of fall harvest, and so it's reminding them if they practice this that all good gifts are from God. They can't be taken for granted, and they can't be hoarded. Well, guys, we might not be Israelites in a wilderness, but I think those are really, really good things to remember. That God is present, that his protection is available, and that all good gifts are from God. But we don't practice that. And I think in the warning, like Nehemiah comes on the scene and we're like, yes, they finished the temple, they finished the city walls and gates, they have this celebration. It's all looking great. Except... It doesn't end great. It ends in tragedy. They make these promises to God, and they're like, okay, we're, not gonna, we're gonna honor the Sabbath. We're gonna practice all the festivals. We're gonna uh, not marry people that are not Jews, not because it's against our racial or interracial marriages, but because these people that are non-Jews don't want to worship our God or witness as his people. And so, that's why they're saying they're going to pull away. We're going to honor and care for the temple and the people in the temple. Yes, we're going to make all these promises to God, which sounds a lot like the reading. God's people show up in the wilderness after their first experience of being in exile, which was Egypt. God makes a covenant with them. He brings the law. The people make promises, and then they rebel. They get into the promised land. Joshua brings them in. The people all gather. They make those promises again. They say, we're going to be faithful, and then they're not. And here again, they make these promises in chapter 9 of Nehemiah. They say, we're going to be faithful, and they dedicate themselves, and it looks like they're about to, and not chapters 9 and 10, and then they don't. Nehemiah goes back to the Persian emperor, and as he returns, he he's presumably leaves someone else in charge, or the Persian emperor puts someone else as the governor in charge of the place. So he's gone for about 12 years. He's back at the temp, uh, capital of, in Persia, Susa, I believe, anyway. 12 years later, he comes back for another term as governor. And 
It reminds me of the scene from the first Incredibles movie. Maybe you've seen it when they open the scene up and they're interviewing the superheroes and he's like, sometimes I just want this city to... He like, every time you save it, it's like they go and mess it up again. Can't this people just stay saved? And that's, I think, what Nehemiah is feeling. The people have stopped giving their offerings to God. They've stopped caring for the temple, so much so that the priests and the Levites who are supposed to work at the temple are working in fields because they're trying to get their food because no one's caring for them, so they're trying to care for themselves. And Nehemiah flips out about it. Nehemiah 13.10. The people are... That, that the food assigned to the Levites had not been given. All the Levites and musicians responsible for the worship had gone back to their fields. Then the people are breaking the Sabbath. Nehemiah looks around in uh, verse 15 and 16. He saw people uh, treading wine presses and gathering grain. Now, anybody farm, grew up in a farm, been on a farm, no farming, milk a cow? Okay, when a cow needs to be milked, it's not like you can wait a day, right? Uh, we're just going to stop there. Sometimes the harvest of the grain, when it needs to be cut, it needs to be cut. Notice, though, that the people in Judah, God's people, they are treading wine presses. They're making wine. Grapes need to ferment. That can wait a day. The making of wine, is, it's going to taste good the next day. The bringing in of grain, they're not cutting it, they're gathering it. That can wait a day. Not only that, but then the people that are outside of town, they come to sell stuff. And when I'm reading, I'm like, okay, really? Like, why is, why is making wine or gathering grain or buying or selling on the Sabbath, why is that a big deal? Isn't, I mean, Jesus even says that the Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. Do we have to really be a slave to a day? But think about what's in jeopardy. There are people who've come back who are returning to a land who have for 70 years, and when the people were in Israel, Egypt, 400 years, they're in danger of forgetting who they are and who God has called them to be. Their worship of God and their witness as his people are in jeopardy. It's about living different and looking distinct as God's people. It's like if we turn on a flashlight in a room that's very bright, it's not very different. But when the room is dark and we turn on that little light, there is a stark difference. It's not being weird, it's being distinct. That's what's going on in what is happening, I think, at the end of Nehemiah. And so then the people are marrying foreign spouses again. And it says that Nehemiah sees this, women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And this isn't just against women. This is, he, he, he flips out. Because again, it's about being the people of God, learning the language of God. It says, I beat some of the men, I pulled out their hair, I made them take an oath, I forced them to promise not to give their sons in marriage to women, not to give their women in marriage to sons. It's both genders going both ways, and Nehemiah loses it, and it's almost like cartoon-like funny, except they're real people, and it's a real leader. Uh, and we don't have to just pick on 
the president that we have, we've had lots of presidents of our nation do things that are embarrassing or dishonoring or shameful. It's kind of like that. So instead of this happy ending, what we get is Nehemiah flipping out in your Bible, it might say, Nehemiah's final reforms. I think it should say, like, Nehemiah's rampage. <laughs> Can't we just control everything? Because you guys keep drifting from God. That's the warning. I think there's always a drift from God. Because that's how it ends. It ends in Nehemiah 13, 31. I made provisions for the wood so that people could give their sacrifices. Remember me with favor. Oh, my God. The end. Like another strange ending. So how does it relate to our lives? I, I think it's the reminder that there's always a drift away from God. We got to spend time um, last week or the week before on a vacation at the ocean for part of it. And I got to step into the, the hot, like right after the crest of the high tide, so it was coming back to low tide, and stepping out in about waist-deep water, you could feel the rush of a wave crash over you, but then because I was a swimmer, I could also feel the current just like flood me back out into the water. There's always a pull out at the ocean, and in the same way, I think there's always a pull that pulls us away from God. It usually starts with an apathy, with an unawareness, like the woman who cuts the ends of the ham off and doesn't realize why she's doing what she's doing until the son asks. It's the same thing. We can do practices, we can practice religion, whether it's festival or tabernacles or whether it's Easter or Christmas, and if we don't really understand and plug into what we're doing and why we're doing it, we can not just miss it, but we can stop it, and it really doesn't matter for our lives or for our kids, or for those around us who don't know God. And once the drift starts, I think it's easy to move into arrogance. Nehemiah 9, 16. Our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked. They refused to listen. Nehemiah 9, 26. They were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They turned their backs. Nehemiah 9, 28. They did what was evil in, their, in your sight. And when they cried out, you heard and compassion delivered time after time, or 929. You warned them to turn back, but they became arrogant and they disobeyed. Because we love to be self-sufficient. We love to do it on our own. So Israel's problem before exile is that their hearts were hard and they rebelled against God. After exile, they're back in the land of promise. And what's their problem? The same thing. Their hearts are hard. And when uh, next week we'll see John the Baptist, he'll come on the scene, go out to the Jordan River, call people out to the wilderness to return to God, to confess and repent because their hearts were hard. This is the pattern. There's always a drift. And so I think, though, there, there's also some encouragement that we can take. There's steps that we can take to minimize that drift because I think first we can seek God. That's what the people were really trying to do in the midst of this. Chad White and Jeff Anderson spoke the last two weeks, and they offered some really powerful application to us to read, 
the Bible, to pray, and to join in community are three ways that we can seek God and seek him first. And um, Jeff shared this powerful point that I'm still chewing on where Nehemiah prays at the, after all of the walls built or right before all the walls built and he says, remember my adversaries, O oh God, according to their deeds. Like, God, I can't stress over this. I can't control the situation. I can't control the people and I know I shouldn't plot revenge. So I'm gonna give it to you to think about because I got a work to do. Like, that's how we can seek God. We can remember who's in control because we really can't control things. That's what Nehemiah, I think, was trying to do. We can seek God, though. He can change hearts. The second thing I think we can do is we can engage in some what I call sacred rhythms. Sacred rhythms are just things that we do. They're routines in either our day or our week or our month or even our year that require a little more effort than just reading or praying on your own. Those are powerful things, but more than that. These are things that look different for different people, but they help us connect with God, with God's story, and with God's people. Sacred rhythms connect us with God, with God's story, and with God's people. They're like the Festival of Tabernacles that we talked about. God actually gave Sabbath as part of this sacred rhythm to a group of people who were slaves who had worked every day all the time. He said, you're going to take a day off, a day to stop, a day to rest, a day to see God and celebrate and feast. It's not boring. And a day to worship. He gave them that. That was the first sacred rhythm gift. He gave them festivals like Passover in March, um, their first month, like Pentecost, um, two months later, and tabernacles. And we, we don't have to follow those, although I think there's things we can learn from them. But what, what we can do is we can look at our calendar. We can look at Advent, the weeks up to Christmas, and Christmas, and Easter. We can look at communion. We can look at our small groups. We can look at disciple groups or Bible studies or these moments in our lives that connect us with God, with God's people, and with God's story and say, this is about engaging with you, God, about remembering who I am and where I am. And so if we do that, I think we can minimize the risk, I, or the drift. I have a, what I call a prayer and planning day, which is a day that says, I'm not in the office, I'm out, I'm looking back at where God's been at work in my life and in the church, and then I'm looking forward to where God's working and might work in my life and in my family and in the church. And it has been an unbelievably life-giving and rejuvenating thing when I forget where I am and what I'm doing. So what do you have? What could you try? And I think lastly, if we really, really want to stop the drift, we have to surrender to the Savior. We have to depend on Jesus. Next week, we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday when Jesus enters this city of peace and he weeps over it because the city is devoid of peace. Just like this temple that was built in Ezra in Nehemiah's time was void of God's Spirit and the people just missed it. Because the people really, if you just zoned out, tune in. Because the people really didn't need a new temple. 
They really didn't need new gates and new walls. What they really needed was new hearts. That's what the prophets continued to say over and over, that one day I will take their heart of flesh, or their heart of stone out, I will remove it, I will give them a heart of flesh so that they will obey my commands, they will follow and seek me as God, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. One day, Jesus came and brought us that day. He gave his life so that we could receive his spirit and we could live in that surrender, in that dependence, every moment of every day, that we wouldn't have to have this drift away from God, that that God's spirit wouldn't just be in one place like the temple, it would be in a person, in Jesus, and ultimately in each of us if we receive him. I think that's what it means to surrender to Jesus. We need that relationship. We need to offer our burdens our obstacles, our failures, and also our successes and our dreams and our desires. Offer them to him because he's the one person that will not let us down. In Jesus' story, you don't see a running away from God. You see a return to God, a constant dependence. And if he's ultimately the true human that we can follow, then he lived his life that way and we can with his spirit, live our life that way too. We have to depend on him every day. If you want to try and be perfect and do it on your own, good luck. I've tried. It's, it's, I'm unsuccessful and I just get arrogant or apathetic. But when we surrender, we receive everything. You just consider where God might be asking you to depend on him a little more, to surrender those things that you've been holding on to, that you think, God, you know, this might not sound very smart, but I just think I can do this a little bit better. I think I can control this a little more. And offer them to the one who is the wise, caring, and good. Lord, hear our prayers.